actually the funny story from the from Art Basel. So I was hanging with with J. Cal and we're talking to people. Yep. And Great for guy. some reason, J. Cal was being nice to me and he said to people, he said, Do you know who this guy is? This guy is a legend in Silicon Valley. You know, he introduces me. Yeah. And then I said to Jason, I'm like, you know, this is Beeple, and he who just sold like two sixty million dollar like yeah. NFTs. I'm like, this guy's a legend too. And without missing a beat, J. Cal says, Well, maybe for the next year. <laughs> Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 58 of the All In Podcast. Yes, the podcast. I don't know if you guys have been watching. I'm drinking, stats. boys. I'm drinking. Well, it's a uh, Friday. We're, we're filming late on a Friday. You can tell from the backyard uh, behind mm. Shamath that it's the evening. Delicious. And he's cracked open a little something, something. Mm, a little, little, little delishy poops. Delicious. Ooh, oh, Bond. Mm. 2002, St. Eden. Hmm. Hmm. That's a that's a label of Bond, correct? Yes, sir. Yep. Bond Saint Eden, two thousand two. Oh, very nice. Uh, thanks for the invite. I'll be right over. <laughs> uh, uh, episode fifty eight last week. Episode fifty seven peaked at number forty episodes in the world. So thank you to the fans. Uh, we broke one hundred twenty five thousand subscribers on YouTube, and uh, the pods over there are getting one hundred fifty thousand views. So. Thank, just thank you to the fans. A lot of questions about the All In Summit. I went to see the locations when I was in Miami. We've got the location we want. We're working on dates, and you'll have more information soon about that. Uh, so, welcome back to the program. With us today, as always, is the Sultan of Science, the Queen of Quinoa himself, David Friedberg, the Rain Man. Yeah, he's definitely back from Art Basel. Of course, he went to Art Basel. And I don't know if he bought any art, but I was on his boat with him. Uh, or his rented boat. David Sachs and I were on a boat. Ooh, and a rented boat. Well, wow. I mean, I, he hasn't bought one yet, but I think he's moving there. And then, of course, the dictator himself, Chamali Polly Hapatia here. Chamali. With an Chimali. obnoxiously mm. expensive sweater. Tell us about <laughs> that. Uh, yes, yes. Can Tell, I? Everybody wants what to know. What animal was killed to make that what garment. What animal was killed <laughs> yeah. for that horrible Ernie sweater? Yeah. This, this is a collection. <laughs> oh, God. Of the foreskins of some white oh, no, tigers. No. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it is incredibly soft and smooth. I literally like, got a complaint. Like, like foreskins are. Oh, God. <laughs> I guess really going in a bad direction, right? I Free literally Brick's got like, a complaint. Freebrick and Sachs are like, what are they talking about? <laughs> I literally got a complaint on DM about Chamath's con conspicuous consumption of his sweaters and they and she was like listen i don't mean to tell you your business but i think chamath is turning off the audience with was these sweaters it, was it an angry mid-level white <laughs> it was a white <laughs> but a very extremely <laughs> successful one i'll leave yeah. it at that anyway uh really really they were just really? concerned really? they were like that? every really? week really really we have to go through chamath's sweater <laughs> does she pay does she pay attention when i put in 700 million dollars a year into climate change how has she put in that much uh with her done? shitty sweaters uh, okay, listen, enough. Give him some, some more wine. Give him just some more checking. wine. Someone text wow. now. It's going to be one yeah. of those. Just checking. just checking. If okay. we're going to start moral virtue signaling over here. <laughs> All right, well, there's a, we got a lot to cover. I mean, this is just absolutely crazy. I want finish a glass of wine real quick and then roll into the show. This is, this is going well I mean, this well show so is going to go off the rails. Yeah. I've already lost control yeah. of the show. Uh, All right, we got to start with inflation and the economy. 
uh, while Sachs and I were in uh, Miami for our Basal, there was an absolute uh, panic going on two, three in the morning, people checking their Robinhood and Coinbase accounts to figure out how much they had lost in their crypto holdings. But today, I lost more in the Robinhood stock than I have in the Robinhood app. <laughs> <laughs> That's too soon, bro. That's too soon for me. I'm about to distribute. I'm like, do I distribute <sighs> now or wait? That thing, for that thing has been a stone Oof. sinking to the floor of the ocean. Well, I mean, it's pretty Never crazy. Never to be found. No, nah, I mean, listen, $17, $18 billion, a pretty great valuation. Uh, right now, I think it's an opportunity for people, but I'll leave it at that. Let's talk about inflation. <laughs> Inflation, <laughs> but we're not dispensing stock advice. We're just, not <laughs> stock advice, but I'm not selling any of my you know, shares. Of, uh, I'm telling you right now. Before Robin I distribute Square, my stock I'm and mark my capital gains, I'd like to advocate to belong to Robin Hood. Shamat, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just ask you, don't show up drunk for the next episode. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Uh, I can't even get through the first story here. Okay. Inflation. By the way, does, it, does this woman even own a cashmere sweater that she okay, has? Can we get off of like, Who is people? this person? Fuck right, her. She's a, Oh, please beep that out. God. God almighty. All right. What a fucking loser. Stop Chiroth, it. I'm, I'm glad to hear you're doing something with all those foreskins because we don't want them to go to waste. <laughs> God what almighty. What do they do with the foreskins? All those circumcisions? And I would love for you to just drive here and touch the sweater. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I can't. I'm like, sounds this like is something to do on a Friday night. Um, all right. Inflation numbers. <laughs> this is important, folks. Uh, inflation year over year. Uh, Sorry, November. but excuse me. But if you're if you're spending your time working in biotech, working in crypto, and fighting climate change, it's we'll wrong to buy a, a cashmere sweater. Like it's, all of a sudden, like wrong you also Lord. have to look like a homeless fucking you no, know lumberjack. Was, is that the goal? We have to start to look the ugly? show because being ugly is so cool now. The idea was: Do we have to start the show with your fashion you choices? Started, you started with that bullshit statement by this person who better be good looking or well dressed. Otherwise, they have no right to make this claim. All right, calm down, Chamath. Let's get to the show. You insulted his sweater game. That's I know. A definite it's really, now we know he's most sensitive. <laughs> oh, honestly, you might as well have called me a. Oh, dude! You might as dude. well, dude. Dude. Stop! It's just a sweater comment, and really? it's just a conspicuous consumption. Is that, is that what she's really trying to say? Should maybe we, she's um, trying to maybe she's trying to, to call me the people. <laughs> no, because you brought it up. Who is it? Out her. I'm not out. Let's cancel her. We're not getting. Nobody's getting canceled for pointing out that you're talking about four thousand dollar chinchilla sweaters. I, I've never said how much they cost. We beeped it out. I've never said how much this sweater costs. All right, costs. do you want a sweater worth more than $4,000 or not? Of course I do. All right. <laughs> but I'm all rest my case. <laughs> I rest my case. I own many, Guilty. but that's not the point. Guilty I on mean. all charges. <laughs> Conspicuous consumption. Uh, CPI, the past three months, today was 6.8 year over year. It's the largest increase since 1982. We're getting back to the post-Jimmy Carter era. Uh, and when Reagan... Got in there, inherited that mess. September was 5.4, October 6.2, November 6.8. Points up 0.6 or approximately 10% over October, 1.4% over September. And um, here's the chart uh, for those of you watching uh, on the YouTube channel. This all started in March of 2021. That was the first month where the CPI rose over 2%. And who was wrong on inflation? Well, the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, called it transitory numerous times over the past two years. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen 
uh, in her Senate confirmation hearing in December of 2020, Yellen said she believed the Fed and Biden admin could take advantage of interest rates being near zero and spend more on stimulus. Economist Paul Krugman thought it was transitory in his op-ed, how not to panic about inflation. That did not age well. Quote, our business is actually starting to set prices and wages based on the expectation of high future inflation. If they aren't, and my bet is they won't be, then the lesson of 2010 to 2011 will remain. Don't panic. My God, he could not have been more wrong. Who was right on inflation? Jamie Dimon in March, I would suspect there is a pretty good chance you're going to see rates going up and people are starting to worry about that. The American public, specifically Gen Z, has been on top of this issue. 77% uh, of Americans were either somewhere or somewhat or very concerned about inflation back in March. And Gen Z, uh, people aged 18 to 24, had the highest rate of very concerned about inflation at 52%. Larry Summers also got this right. Sachs, what are your thoughts? on inflation which now seems acute and permanent right well it's definitely not transitory um remember when it was at about 5.1 percent over the summer that the administration said no big deal this is transitory don't panic um, then it went to 6.2 now it's 6.8 looks like it's headed to seven percent and the, the real problem here is that these guys the administration have not adjusted course in light of this data what they've tried to do instead is now speciously claimed that the same bills that they had written and conceived the build back better bill somehow even though it was conceived at a time uh that was really deflationary that somehow this is going to fight inflation they're essentially repurposing they're just changing the arguments they're using as opposed to changing their their legislative priorities and just today we got a report from cbo saying that this build back better bill wasn't going to cost two trillion like the administration said it's going to cost five trillion and add $3 trillion to the deficit. Over 10 years, correct? Over 10 years, if those programs are not sunsetted. So there's a bunch of budgetary gimmicks that were put in the bill. Basically, a lot of the programs would sunset after one year or three year or six years. And so that's the only way they've gotten it to this you know, $1.9 trillion price tag. The reason why that's a gimmick is because once the programs are created, there's going to be, it will create a special interest or constituency who is now dependent on those programs and no one's ever going to want to cut them. Milton, Milton Friedman famously said that there's nothing quite so permanent as a temporary government program. So that is the game that progressives are playing is they're going to create the dependent, the dependency, the constituency who once they receive the program is never going to want to give it up. And they're counting on the fact that these programs will not sunset, which means they will cost $5 trillion. And it will add three trillion to the to the debt um, to the deficit. So, you know, the problem is it'd be one thing if we were in a deflationary environment, if the economy was in the tank. But th these guys are continuing to pump more and more stimulus into an economy that has enough. And really, Larry Summers made this point all the way back in February. I think this is worth reading what he said. He said there's a chance that macroeconomic stimulus on a scale closer to World War II levels than normal recession levels. We're set off inflationary pressures of a kind we have not seen in a generation. He said this in February. Everyone in the administration dismissed him. All the uh, liberal economists that you mentioned basically derided him. He turned out to be exactly right. And he was just saying this about the, the one point, the roughly two trillion they passed back in February for of COVID stimulus. And, you know, since then they passed 1.2 trillion for infrastructure. And now it's this another five trillion for build back better. So. You know, the, the real problem here is that they are not adjusting course in light of this data 
that keeps coming out that inflation is a bigger and bigger problem. So what's problem. the right thing to do in your mind, Sachs? And then we'll, well go to you, Chabot. Elon said it, can this bill? We don't need it. This is not what Biden was elected to do. You know, he was elected to provide normalcy, stop the chaos. And he, he never got a mandate for this kind of, you know, whatever, $10 trillion well, I mean, we've been wanting to do an infrastructure bill for a long time, but we didn't, that was prior to pumping so much stimulus into the if system. If just so. done the infrastructure bill and not the Build Back Better, it would have been one thing. Um, but we're, this is basically the, the third hyper-stimulatory bill that, that they've sought to pass. First, they did the COVID release bill at a time when really the economy didn't need that stimulus. I All mean, right. and then Mil- just dovetailing this, yeah. and get Chamath involved in this, is the jobs report. Uh, November non-farm payrolls increased only 210. They expected it to be 573. So it's a big miss. However, kind of a missed bag because there's over 11 million job openings. And we're now at 4.2% unemployment rate, which is the lowest, which, which is getting towards the pandemic lows. And you know, it's, this is like before the 2008 financial crisis. Shamath, how do you reconcile inflation, along with this crazy, bizarre job situation where people will not go back to work, people are planning on resigning, there continues to be resignations, and there's too many job openings, and people are raising salaries and still can't hire people. Well, I think we did a pretty good job of unpacking the great resignation. I think it was last pod. So right, remember, like, yeah, there are three structural issues at play in the jobs front. One is that you have this really meaningful under immigration that's happened because of Trump. The second was you've had a big mismatch between the degreed classes in America and the jobs that they can have for what they think they should earn, meaning you go to school, you get into all this debt, you try to become a teacher or something, and then you realize you can make more at an Amazon warehouse. Crazy. Strange. And then the fourth is you have all these boomers with an enormous amount of savings, 30, 40, 50 trillion dollars, who are pulling forward their retirement and also subsidizing their kids. You put it all together, there's less of an incentive to be in the job force unless you pay higher wages. Now, let's just put a pin in that for a second. I think the thing that Sachs talked about is really important, which is that we have to really figure out whether inflation is transitory or it's persistent and it's here. And I just want to bring up, I'll, Nick, I'll send you these text, uh, these, the, the, the Twitter links to this, but, uh, Bill Ackman tweeted out these two things today, which is that if you fan of the pod, brilliant investor, by the way, uh, great human being, brilliant investor, two very specific things. He actually called out something that we've, we also mentioned before, which is that CPI is horribly calculated and it's really imprecise. And if you unpack CPI, there's something price index, the consumer price index, there's something in there, a component of it, that's very important, which is called the owner's equivalent rent, right? How much can somebody basically charge rent to other people? The way that they calculate that, which is 30% of the uh, 30% of the calculation is they just survey a handful of people. The problem is you don't need to survey because the actual exact data is available from single family rentals that report this number. Mm. So their survey showed basically a uh, much, much smaller increase than what the actual increase is. And let me just give it. So the largest owners of nationwide single family rentals are reporting a 17% year over year rent increase. Wow. The the OER that was calculated, quote unquote, by survey in the CPI was 3.5%. 
If you flow that through, it means that core CPI actually went from 4.9% today to actually 9%. And the CPI print, which was 6.8%, was actually 10.1%. So it just goes to show you we have sources of data that the government is not in a position to collect or measure. We have horribly inaccurate econometric models that we use. You know, you know that phrase sort of shit in, shit out. So unfortunately, you get very bad. Garbage in, garbage out. You get yeah. very bad, crappy data. And now all of a sudden, we're printing numbers. We're supposed to make policy against those numbers. But the numbers that underlie this decision making is fundamentally flawed. And it's flawed in the wrong direction. Okay, let's bring Friedberg in. Friedberg, what, what do you think is happening here vis-a-vis -vis, uh, also the creation of companies and entrepreneurship? Because one of the weird things that's occurring is we're starting to hit a record number of LLCs, S Corps, C Corps being created. It seems like a lot of people are becoming freelance nation, uh, hundreds of 1000s of new companies during the pandemic were started. That is probably one of many places where the water is flowing when you fill my cup and it shall overfloweth. Um, I was talking to a guy this week, who juicy smollet. No, it's not that, that Smollett, no. yeah, was that bad oh, person. Come on, come on. Yeah. Um, Put the wine down. No, no, let him drink Go the ahead, wine. Freeberg. Um and uh, drink it fast. This guy has a multi-billion dollar consumer credit portfolio in subprime, which means you know he's got the a mm. bunch of consumers owe him money that uh -oh. um generally there's gonna be a high default rate. <laughs> and his No comment. Not and um, he said that this year, the portfolio performed beyond like the one percentile of the model distribution of what they expected to happen. They they had the yield on the portfolio be 40% higher than they thought it would be. Because there's so much liquidity in the hands of individuals. And so I think, you know, um, Jason, while you might make the argument that companies and jobs are being created, that is one of many places where like, you know, you overflow a river and lots of streams start to flow. You know, we're seeing um, asset bubbles everywhere in uh, NFTs, in crypto, in startups, in new startups, in new ideas, in home prices, in everything. Sneakers. Now, the problem with inflation is, um, you know, it's a uh, definition. Like, we all use this term and we throw it about. But like inflation is really the measure of price going up over a period of time. And generally, you want to have inflation of some amount that allows you to see economic growth and expansion that allows you to fund the debt that you used to create that growth in the first place. And so without infl without some sort of an inflationary pressure, which is the output of economic growth, you end up, you know, being unable to meet your debt obligations. And then things get really ugly. And uh, the system as it was constructed, because most of these governments and systems like we have today, are funded by debt. So, um, you know, uh, Stan Druckenmiller gave a good interview in Q2. He was kind of on a roadshow, you know, um, sounding the alarm bells around what was going on. He was saying the market is not speaking right now because basically the Fed kept canceling the market signals uh, with their um, uh, with their interest rate policy. And by canceling those market signals, it seemed like we had a free for all at the government level to keep spending. And so I, I do think that these two are pretty interrelated. The fact that we've kept interest rates low have allowed policymakers to say, you know what, the cost of debt for this government is zero, we can do anything we want, just like consumers are saying, we can do anything we want, we can buy anything we want, we can spend any way we want. And as a result, we're kind of seeing this, you know, inflationary pressure uh, persist. Now, the problem is, if you then raise rates, and you can't borrow that money, and suddenly people have to start to pay that debt down, 
with, um, without economic growth having occurred, the business goes, the, the whole system goes bankrupt. So the challenge that the Fed has is how do we raise rates without triggering an economic recession? And if people are now have overspended and are over levered once again, and rates go up, it's going to get really ugly really fast. And so the, 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 this is a first derivative balancing well, act. And, it, and it, yeah, it, there's, there's no simple and easy solution, unfortunately. Meanwhile, technology is causing deflationary pressures, which is exactly, you know, maybe what you don't want to see happen when you're trying to realize economic growth. Um, and that's, uh, yeah. The other thing that we talked about is that um, the Fed basically changed the, or the, the government changed the rules on the percentage basically what qualifies as a conforming mortgage remember that and so now that's basically at a at a million dollars and if you think about it most americans you know 80 to 90 percent of their true underlying wealth is their home to the extent that they've built you know a positive net worth and if you all of a sudden you know push up the upper bound on what a conforming mortgage is to a million a million dollars that effectively means it's and it's roughly about 20 percent that effectively means that you're moving people's net worth up by about four or five percent. That's right. And so, and so, if they take that and then they take that money out of their home via a HELOC or an equity line of credit, right? Home equity line of credit, and then you know, to your point, Friedberg, they spend it or they invest it or they, you know, it could be a real disaster scenario um, in five or six years. By the way, I, no, yeah. no, this is more like 1929 kind of. Thing. Yeah. By the way, if you go back uh, to the remember when we were in like the depths of the market collapsing and everything, when basically the economy shut down with lockdowns when COVID started, and I was speaking to a senior banker um, at that like that day, and he told me, "Look, it's pretty simple. What's going to happen? The Fed's going to drop interest rates to zero, and they're going to pump money into the system." Because that's the only way you're going to be able to keep asset prices from collapsing. And we're going to artificially inflate asset prices. And we're going to do it for a long time. Because then people look at the stock market and they say, oh my gosh, stocks are going up. Oh my gosh, revenue is going up. Everything gets inflated by pumping money into the system. And the problem is, while there's a, you know, a perceived... You, you keep saying the home price goes up and I keep saying stocks go up. But they, the purchasing power that arises when the inflation is higher than what those things are going up at indicates economic recession underlying that inflationary bubble. And the circumstance needs to be analyzed, unfortunately, a little bit more deeper than that, which is it's not just about inflation. It's about have we pumped enough money in to trigger economic growth that we can come to balance where the growth can outpace the inflation. And we're not there. Well, superimposed on this. Because, because like, think about it. Sorry, let me just say, let me just say one simple analogy. Let's say I've got 50 clams. And, you know, there's suddenly a bunch of clams come into the clam market. Now I got 100 clams. And if the number of clams has gone up by 3x, my purchasing power has actually gone down by a third. While it might look like I've now got twice as many clams, I can only buy one third as much as I could buy before because there's so many more clams floating around. And that's the problem. I love clams. Uh, you love clams. Clams and, just and, you know, clams or you like them just... All right, listen, uh, I did a little bit of math. I've been watching... Um, the uh, price to sales ratios of some of the top companies, we can pull this up on the screen. Um, and the price to sales of uh, companies, including zoom, obviously was ridiculous. Uh, during the pandemic, that was a pandemic stock. So on top of all of this money being printed into the system, you had the participation of a bunch of stonk traders, you know, in that whole movement, buying up meme stocks or others we had the price sales ratio of 
Zoom, in other words, the value of the enterprise versus their actual sales was at 123. It's now at 14.7. Peloton was another one of those at 23, now down to 3x, down 87%. Coinbase, uh, Square also, uh, it drops off pretty significantly here. Um, but you can also, we looked at the peak price to sales um, and how much larger it is then. And so some of these are now off 8x, 4x, and then it drops off to 2x, 1x. Um, but it's quite a, I don't know if you guys are looking at the numbers or if you have any thoughts on this, but we're re, it seems like there was a mispricing of certain equities. And there wasn't a mispricing. The Federal Reserve forced a lot of institutional investors to be out as long dated as possible uh, in buying earnings. Because if you, if you have to remember, it's not just that real rates were effectively zero, but if you wanted to own inflation protected securities, it was actually a negative yield. So we were destroying people's savings. And there are a lot of individuals, sorry, well, not individuals, institutions that must own some of these inflation protected assets. So we were already in a negative yield environment. What are those folks supposed to do if they have to fund an 8% return a year to pay the pensions of you know, good people, firefighters, teachers, you know, it's you name it, policemen, etc, right? They were forced to invest in the kinds of funds that would then go out further and further out into the future to buy the promise of future cash flows. And when all of a sudden, a whole bunch of other assets that that they held, which were supposed to be safe implodes on them, right? Because all of a sudden inflation changes and the front end of the yield curve goes whoop. And all of a sudden, all these assets, when yields go up, prices go down. Now the fireman's pension is like, oh my gosh, we just lost all this money. We never thought we were going to lose. And we're long all these, you know, crazy tech stocks. And so then they're forced to sell so that their overall exposure goes down. That's called degrossing. Okay. And we've been going through a very painful process of this degrossing. Hedge funds are doing it. Um, in droves. Can I ask you a question then, Shema? I'm sorry to interrupt, but should they not have looked at these multiples and said, you know what? Maybe this one's out of whack and I should buy the ones that are not as out of whack because this not to really, me seems- Not really, because for not? the last 15 years, if you had, you know, the, the problem with being a value investor over the last 15 years since 2008 is you were basically a dumpster diver and you got paid absolutely, you know, you didn't make anything because because they misunderstood what value was. Value isn't necessarily things that are cheap. Value is things that are things that are valuable. And over the last 15 or 20 years, what was once a question is now definitive, which is that the things that are valuable tend to be technological because they're super high margin, they grow really quickly, they compound, they create enormous cash flows at scale. So the point, the point is you couldn't own that stuff. And if you sat on the sidelines, you weren't meeting your 8% hurdle. You were all of a sudden looking at some risk of defaulting on your pension obligations. So this is how this whole cycle brought us to today. So there was nowhere, what you're saying is, if I can summarize, there was nowhere else for them to put their money. Sachs, price matters though. So is this just bad capital allocation? People weren't thinking about the, the entry price of their investments? We're giving too much credit? Well, I think, I think what happened is that you had a liquidity fueled boom um, going on. So what we've seen over the past four or five weeks, about the first week in November, most the market basically peaked and at least growth stocks did and SaaS companies did. If you look kind of November 8th was sort of the beginning of the downturn. And since then, most of these growth 
Stocks are down about 30% plus. Crypto is down now. I mean, it's sliding as we speak, 30, 40% off a, off a peak around the same time. What happened around the first week of November? Well, you had three Fed governors come out and make very hawkish statements about the fact that the Fed was going to need to double the speed of its taper and that you're going to have two to three rate increases next year. And so basically, we went from being in a low interest rate environment, which has been the case, not only just low interest rate environment, low interest rates with massive stimulus and pumping out of Washington by both the Fed and by, uh, by Congress. Okay. And so you went from that environment to all of a sudden an environment of now we're expecting to have rate increases, and that's going to suck the liquidity out of the system. The, the amazing thing that I'm seeing right now is that every investor I know is having the same conversation. It doesn't matter whether you're a SaaS investor or a real estate investor or a crypto investor. They're all having the same conversation, which is what are interest rates going to do? How much liquidity is that going to suck out of the system? And how much of the boom that we've experienced over the last couple of years has been because of this unnatural liquidity that's been pumped into the system. And so I've never seen I've never seen it be the case that investors across every asset category are having that macro conversation as opposed to talking about like micro stuff, right? Like the specific com- company, the yeah, earnings, exactly. the product, who they're beating, the market right. share. Nobody's talking about that. Like what building do I buy or what SaaS company do I invest in? It's all about what, what is happening in the macro picture. And this is where I think what Biden is doing is so unbelievably off base is Okay, look, he didn't start trillion dollar deficits. Um, you know, that happened to the previous president. I'm not saying that was good, but, but now what we have is a situation here of, um, of the Fed is getting extremely hawkish of tightening. Um, we're seeing inflation now out of control, and yet there's been no adjustment whatsoever Nobody on a policy changing. basis. Yeah. Can we just say Nobody's the ugly truth? The right. Wait, let's just, let's just call, let's just call a spade a spade at this point, because I think we can. I think. And I think Biden was, is, and will ever be a really moderate, down the middle centrist. I don't think there has ever been an extreme bone in that man's body. He has always come off at, like, you know, the word that I think when I've always thought of Biden, even now, is equanimity. The guy is a really um, down the middle person. He's not an extreme individual. I think that's the only kind of personality, by the way, that could have thrived for eight years as a VP with Obama and had been in every room in every meeting. The problem, Sachs, and tell me if you think this is totally off base, is that there was a head fake after he won the presidency where there was this fake lurch to the progressive left. And it turned out that it was a complete head fake because that whole cohort of people just totally jumped the shark. Because all that rhetoric then unfortunately turned out to be not worth much. It started to blow up in their face in every single election that's happened since then at the local level in cities at the state level in places like Virginia. And in the middle of all of that, I actually think what happened was that faction tried to push an extremely aggressive legislative agenda to paint Biden as the next Roosevelt, which maybe he didn't even have the the desire to be because I, I think that he seems a very low ego kind of person. And now we're actually realizing, oh my gosh, this makes no sense. And so the part of why I think the markets are, are kind of like hand-wringing is you would expect at this point the federal bureaucracy to actually step in. But I think there's like a real lack of confidence because for, for example, today, when there's a CPI print of somewhere between seven and 10%, the only democratic sounding, you know, the talking point was one of the squad proposing a four day work week. I mean, right. 
That is insane. That that's guys, like you're in crazy debt and you're like, you no, know we should do guys. We should spend that's more insane. money and work less. When the CBO right. says we're about to go three more trillion into debt, the Let's solution isn't to for well, it's I, I actually think if you want to work less, work less. You know, maybe you're lucky and your boomer parents can give you money, but there's a bunch of us like me who had to grind. I didn't have anybody to fall back on. And if you all of a sudden passed the law that said, hey, Chamath, you can only work four days a week, I would be really angry because you're depriving me of 20% more of a chance to beat all those other soft candy asses that went to all those fancy schools that weren't willing to work. Yeah, ignore. That's the stupidest suggestion. Let me work. So I think I think this this proposal that came out to basically th this was a new proposal that they were going to limit the work week to four days a week. Uh, wouldn't let people work five days a week. The reason why it's well, it, it's a bad idea in general, but it's a particularly uh, sort of a brain dead idea to propose during um, a high sort of this inflationary period because again, inflation is caused by too much money chasing too few goods. Well, so you have a demand component from the pumping and the stimulus, but you also have the supply component, which is we don't have enough goods and services. Why? Because we've been, you know, passing out these stimmy checks that um, that disincentivize people from working. We have problems with the ports. We have these COVID restrictions that have all gone in the way. Restaurants are closing three days a week because they right. can't so we've find had a shortage of So we've had a shortage of goods and services. So the last thing we need is a 20% reduction in the number of work days and work hours that are available. So it just shows like how out of touch these progressives are. But Look, to Chamath, to, to your point about Biden, I, I look, I, I don't know, you know, exactly what's in Biden's heart. To me, it doesn't really matter. I think I actually think he's pretty liberal. Um, I, he's not all the way out to where, you know, AOC is fine. Fair enough. But look, at the end of the day, I think, you know, this idea of Biden being a moderate, you know, moderate is as moderate, moderate does. He has not governed like a moderate, whether that's because you know, this moderate thing was just a marketing shtick on his part, and he's actually more liberal or whether he's been co-opted and taken over by the progressives. I don't really care what the reason is. The fact of the matter is he is not governed like well, a at moderate. At least we pull back the spend, David. I mean, the spend No, we have not be... pulled back the spend. Well, no, no, no. The original, remember the original uh, no, bill we, was we, maybe we just two or gave, three times. We just loaded the, we put the bullet in the chamber and loaded it for mansion. This bill is not going to happen, David, with a $3 trillion not. Dollar deficit increase. I hope not. I mean, we'll but, but the point is that, hey, look, if, if, if people like us don't speak up and say this is a reckless, Pump foolish, crazy. Yes, exactly. Then you it, can it only could fly the plane so fast before the wings come off this is too much speed for the airframe let's go to a clip of our friend elon this is a talking. five trillion dollar bill let's go to this clip of elon talking about capital allocation uh it's a couple of it's like 30 seconds and then friedberg i'd like you to comment on the other side let's go you know at some point really what you're doing is capital allocation so you're not it's not money for personal expenditures it's it, what you're doing is, is capital allocation and it does not make sense to take uh the, the job of capital allocation away from people who have demonstrated great skill in capital allocation and give it to, uh, you know, an entity that has demonstrated very poor skill in, in capital allocation, which is the government. Yeah. Friedberg, your thoughts on Look, Elon's... I've, I've, I've said it in the past. This is at a Wall Street Journal conference, by the way. You, you can think of um, uh, a government or a nonprofit or a corporation as an organism, as a living organism, and each living organism wants to eat and grow. Um, and there, there is no such thing as an organism that says over time, I want to shrink and shrivel away and die. So 
the organizing principle of the people in the government is to do more for their constituents, for their owners, which are what they believe to be the taxpayers or their, or their, you know, the folks that elected them to office. The, the politicians themselves, I would argue, are more actors in the Ouija board of behavior that's going on here. And, you know, less kind of, you know, the, the mental designer of a system that they're trying to use to infiltrate change in the world individually and conquer and gain individual power. There may be some degree of motivation there, but I think largely it's more about the fact that that organism, that government wants to grow, wants to spend more, wants to do more over time, not less. And um, this is true of any business. Every business wants to grow. If you're not growing, you're dying. And uh, every nonprofit, there's no such thing as a nonprofit that says, let's not fundraise and let's spend all our money and then shut down. Um, and so I just think like, you know, as much as we want to kind of sit here and rationalize a way to better politicians that are going to better serve us, that are going to think smarter. Um, the reality is every government, every, <laughs> you know, institution of government in the history of, of humankind has tried to grow. And eventually they cycle back, <laughs> you know, the United States, like I said last year, you know, maybe kind of going out with, uh, with a little bit of a whimper, less of a bang. And that's going to, you know, be a function of the devaluation of currency or, you know, having less of a place in the, in the global stage um, and so on. But I, I think Elon's right. Like, you know, he feels and many people in business feel like they're in competition with the government uh, for capital. Um, so and yeah, yeah. And that, that capital is the, the, the only difference is that the government can force that capital, can force that revenue and, uh, and, and no business can. And so they've got an unfair advantage. In, in that in that um, that stage of playing for capital, and this is where you know Bitcoin feels to a lot of people like a great equalizer. And yeah, I'm not a bit, I'm not a huge like I'm not not a Bitcoin maximalist or anything, but I think there, that's where the appeal arises, which is um, you know as Jefferson said, like every uh, generation needs a revolution, and I think that this is the revolution that folks are looking for, which is how do we get this big monopolistic player off the playing field to let us do what we want to do. Well, I mean, it's so easy. I mean, all Biden has to do is what he was elected to. He never had a mandate for this $10 trillion of spending. I mean, the guy ran a basement campaign. I mean, his <laughs> he was elected to not be Trump, okay? He was elected to stop That's the chaos. Not yeah, not to not to Return engage this $10 to trillion dollar adults progressive agenda. Um, uh, you know, e Elon, I think, made a, a really good point about the capital allocation there. You know, people think, okay, Elon's got all this money, so he must be enjoying this like incredible lifestyle. Look, He's right that once you have that much money, you can't spend it all on personal consumption. You invest it. And so the question is, who's going to make that investment? Is it, Who's going to be better at it, Elon or the federal government? We know Elon is better at it. He creates incredible innovations. He's going to put people on Mars. I mean, he can do incredible things with that capital. A million Whereas the government vehicles. just squanders it. Yeah. You know, there's another Elon had another really good. I, mean, I think Elon actually understands um, economics at a, at a macro level really well. He had a really good, um, there's an equally good snippet of him on the Rogan show, um, you know, called Lord the Horn of Plenty, of Plenty. Yeah, the Horn of Plenty. where he says, look, there's a lot of people out there who think the economy is just like this Horn of Plenty that produces all these goods and the goods just magically appear no matter what we do. Okay. And so if some people have more goods than others, it's just because they stole them from the Horn of Plenty. What he actually, what he said is, no, this is not the way the economy works. People actually have to make the stuff. You know, if people don't make the stuff, there is no stuff, okay? The stuff doesn't just magically appear. And the way the stuff gets made is you have people making smart capital allocation decisions and engaging in hard work, and that's what actually produces the stuff. And it's not a zero-sum game. So if you think about like this agenda that we have in Washington, it really flips this on its head. It, 
It's doing everything it can to stop the production of the stuff, whether it's the stimmy checks or the COVID lockdowns or um, you know, bonus or the unemployment, the, extending yeah, or that, or, or just, or just confiscating do- the earnings of people so that they can spend it on whatever Wealth they want. Tax, right. whatever. Exactly. Yeah. It's it, it's actually it's actually putting constraints on the production on the supply of the stuff, and then meanwhile, it's just printing all this money. So then we wonder, where does the inflation come from? Well, obviously, it's coming from printing more money for fewer goods. That's, that's basically the, the problem with the agenda we have in Washington right now. The increase in the deficit is just getting stunning. Uh, if you look back on the five or six last uh, presidents, Reagan, 142% increase, uh, he got us up to 1.42 trillion, he had to obviously uh, combat what happened under Jimmy Carter. Uh, George Bush, George H.W. Bush, 36% increase. President Bill Clinton, a 1% decrease. The first time we've had a stimulus, uh, I'm sorry, a surplus in a long time. And then uh, Bush the second, 57% increase. No, the economic results under Bill Clinton were amazing. I've been talking about it on the show before. I was just about to say, he's a goat. Yeah, but I mean, at the time, what was very interesting is politicians actually took this issue of balancing the budget very seriously, really seriously, deadly seriously, and thinking about how we would pay for things. And now we don't seem to think about who is going to pay for these things, Yes, which is going to screw our children. Okay. So you have to remember that Bill Clinton was the president who said the era of big government is over. And when he left office, he actually bragged about reducing the federal government's share of the economy from 22% to 18.5%. You would never hear a Democratic president. It'll never happen again. You'll never hear a Democratic president. Well, first of all, they wouldn't do it. But second, they wouldn't brag about it. You know, you can't even say something like that. They would that be ashamed in the, in at the balancing. Let me ask you, do you think a Republican president would? Because I'm not convinced that any party matters at this point. It feels to me like the incentive structure is such that the individuals who are representing constituents who get them elected and they can pass more dollars back to those constituents drives a systemic model of growth for the government, and therefore the government is complete, competing as a monopoly on the field for capital. Yeah, and look, I, I think, I, I think I, you I mean, look, point, we, we, You thought Trump was going to be this guy, and Trump came in, and he ended up spending more. And I recognize there were extenuating circumstances and so on, but I thought he was going to go in. I thought the, the premise was blow up the government, you know, cut all this nonsense, and the deficit kind of shot up. You're, you're right that Republicans have a very spotty record on, on uh, government spending. And we did have trillion dollar deficits pre COVID under Trump. And that was not, that was not good. Um, but what Biden is doing now in the, in the face of inflation is worse. And look, I mean, historically, the best, the, the, the only times that you really have, um, it seems like fiscal responsibility is when you actually have the best track records have been when you have Democratic presidents or Republican Congresses, and the Republicans suddenly find their principles on spending when there's a Democrat in the White House. You're right that when Trump was in office and had Congress and uh, George W. Bush, you know, had Congress, the Republicans spent a lot of money too. So it's absolutely a bipartisan problem. But what's happening now in Washington is under Biden is, is unprecedented. It is a breaking of the bank. They're talking about minting trillion dollar coins. So yes, it was a problem under Republicans, but this is even worse. Um, and here, here's another thing is the Fed is now saying that they're projecting two to three rate increases next year. So let's call that 75 basis points. Multiply that by the close to 30 trillion of government debt that you're talking about, Jason. That's about 150 billion a year of interest payments on the debt of debt service. Okay, 150 extra, billion. Extra, 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 extra. That and doesn't exist today. it's not fixed rate, by the way. This That's is right. It's all short-term rates. It's all short-term rates because, yes. So 
So you're looking at 150 billion of incremental debt service costs, right? So multiply that over 10 years. That's 1.5 trillion over 10 years. That's your build back better right there. Where is this money for build back better going to come from when we have 1.5 trillion of increased interest rate costs starting next year? And, and how do we get the cycle of people wanting to go back to work and be productive? It feels to me like this could be Raise a generous- wages which is what's happening, but people are still not going back to work. Have you been watching the, 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 the no, people Jason, are offering $70,000 to be a manager of a Taco Bell and people won't I take understand. the job? Well, then you offer 75000 I still don't think they fill it. No, I think, I, think, I, think, I think that model's dead. I think low-cost labor is inevitably... Uh, the ex- well, it's not low-cost if they're making $75,000. Well, I mean, I think, I think the, uh, in order for, for people to buy the production... I don't it think I don't labor, think, but guys, it's I don't cost. think Taco Bell is going to sell burritos if they cost $6. So if they're going to have to raise labor costs, people aren't going to be buying Taco Bell. They're going to go somewhere else. So the low cost model of consumerism in the United States, which has a, been a stronghold for our economy for 100 years at this point, may be coming to an end or it will accelerate the implementation of automation across that sector of the economy. Yeah, that's what's I happening. I think that's more likely. That's more likely. Yeah. By I the mean, way, one of the if you read the press release for the 4 days a week I'd pay $4 Gobbledy- for a Taco Bell burrito, though. Gobbledygook, gobbledygook the f- in the four days a week thing, it said workers for far too long have been forced to work very long hours and not get paid. And <laughs> wait, wait, they were not paid? And so the idea is just like, you know, opt out. But then if you opt out, you'll make even less. Yeah. In a moment where you can actually make more. Yeah. These idiots who are coming up with these ideas. The, the Chinese must be the looking, Chinese is looking, 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 their their chops, looking at, their at these yeah. buys house oh wrecking God. the American economy. Oh my God. But in terms of, in terms of, well, they don't need to do anything. We're destroying it from the inside. Yeah, exactly. So just, just in terms of what we should do here, I actually think there's a lot of strength in the economy right now. It's all, not all negative. I mean, the unemployment rate is down to four and a half percent. The labor participation rate. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite low. I mean, it, it was three and a half percent before COVID. So we're getting close to where we were before COVID. The labor participation rate's not great. I think it's like 61%. Salaries It was 63% uh, before COVID. So we need to get more people working. We could do that by ending the STEMI checks, okay? But the most important thing we could do right now is Manchin would be, do Biden the biggest favor by just putting a bullet in this Build Back Better plan. Because I actually think there'd be a massive relief rally and the economy would take off like a rocket next year if you just got government out of the way. They have printed enough. The best thing that could happen is they stop this pumping and stimulus. And then the Fed doesn't have to raise rates as aggressively next year. And we could let things have more of a soft landing as opposed to this sudden austerity, which is whipsawing the economy. So just slow the plane down and then yeah. maybe break this bill into 20 component parts and, and just try to, to get stop. a couple he of things done. He spent all the money. He spent all the money. It's spent. I mean, this is a bender of all benders. And if people are refusing to go back to work, we're going to have to. We talked about this in the last episode. We're going to have to think it's about a generalization. Jason, I think it's a generalization to say people refuse to go back to work. I think the jobs that people had when when their options open up to them, um, you know, may not be jobs they want to go back to. Correct. I and agree. I think that there's going to be a larger, significant growth in a services economy that didn't exist before. Think about how many yoga instructors there are today that didn't exist 20 years ago. How many, you know, people YouTube doing hair. Creators. Uh, YouTube creators. Creator, the creator, The creator economy alone, right? Like Hollywood no longer has a monopoly on content. And people are spending more time consuming content than ever before. So, you know, there's a services economy that I don't think we really predicted or modeled. And we all assume, oh, my God, we're not going to, no one's going back to work. It's like, guess what? People are spending money and they're going to spend money on new stuff. And these new industries are going to emerge. We know creators and those creators are going to create jobs around them. You know, one amazing creator will hire 100 people to, 
you know, staff his videos and make his music and edit his stuff and, you know, run his business and so on. Like, it's just, it's just the way that the economy shifts. There's been a moment here that is like a Cambrian explosion of new species of industry um, where, you know, this meteorite of uh, uh, COVID came and hit planet Earth. There was an eradication of the old species, you know, minimum wage jobs for crappy labor work that people don't want to do. And all of a sudden, the sun came out and new stuff is emerging and new life forms are emerging, new jobs are emerging. And I I'll think we're you. just we're, we're going through a really ugly transitory period. But I think it, like like Sack said, it could be really great on the other side. And there's also an, yeah, sorry, there's one more argument to be made, which is our friend Brad Gerstner sent me a note today saying, I know you guys are going to rant on your all in pod today about inflation. I want to remind you about the deflationary effect of technology and it is really being felt in the economy i think we all see it how software alone can reduce the operating cost and the labor costs of businesses drive up margins increase growth and so you know th there's a number of tailwinds here um, but i think Sachs is right there's a masking going on with respect to the capital that's just being bandied about right now um and it, uh, it it's it's a it's a risky nasty kind of um you know maelstrom of a of a sea we're trying to cross right now i want to point out two positive things to build on Sachs's positivity. Number one, I don't know if you guys are following uh, Omicron in the UK. They have record cases right now, but deaths, and they they're also done great with the vaccine, obviously, a uh, small country with a lot of resources. So they're hitting record cases for this last cycle, but deaths and hospitalizations are down. And they say upward of 25, 50% is part is now moved to Omicron. And it seems like uh, that this could be the end game uh maybe and did you ever see the uh the end of um what was it outbreak where they like dropped that bomb and it was like the massive bomb that takes all the air out of the room and like shock shocks everything and then they're like okay it's over you know there could be this thing happening where omicron is the you know the the air bomb that gets dropped clears the room and then it's all over you know well and then here's the other thing uh, the, we don't know i'm seeing the salaries going up faster than inflation people are raising people's salaries you know, in double digits to try to get them to come to these jobs. So the people who are choosing to go back to work, and people are eventually choosing that and switching jobs to Shamat's point, I think they're gonna be making more money. And they're gonna be more resilient, and they are going to be a little more empowered. And that could end up being a great thing. And then finally, in terms of technology, I have one robotic company uh, that serves coffee, and they had a record week. Pump it. They, Pump well, it, pump, pump it, but pump, they got, pump, I don't want to say the pump, name. Pump, 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 yeah, pump it. No, pump no, it. they they broke eleven thousand dollars in people ordering from a robotic coffee machine. Previously, the record was like seven k a week. So people tell are getting your, used. Uh, tell your stupid lady friend I have an eleven thousand dollars sweater. Oh no! <laughs> Please stop it! Stop it! Uh, all right, listen. I don't know if you guys saw this Better.com layoffs viral video, but. It, can, uh, you, can you break this down, J. Cal? I, had, I was not following this. All right, very simple. There's a company called Better.com. They get rid of origination fees or whatever and commissions. They try to get you faster mortgages, insurance, whatever. Uh, they were going to SPAC. SoftBank was going to put in $1.5 in the pipe. Everything was going according to SoftBank plan. SoftBank was already in the company, right? So they were trying to get their own company out. Yeah. Right. So uh, obviously the market corrects. Everybody always asks us as a group, what happens when the market corrects? Well, here you're about to see it. This guy decides I got to cut 10% of the company instead of having his managers go to each group and have a logical small discussion about how they're going to correct things and maybe some sort of thoughtful process. He decides he's going to get on Zoom to the entire 900 people who are fired and in a very bizarre sorry, way. Sorry, nine, 900 people were 900 fired? 900 people. But over yes, Zoom. Over Zoom. But how big is this company? 10,000 employees. 
And he says to them, that the last time I had to do this, I laid people off, I was I cried, and I'm going to try to do better this time. But if you are on this call effective, immediately, you're fired. It's, it's just <laughs> another one of these crazy clips we have to I respond to see it 30 seconds. Chamath, give me your thoughts on the other side. Thank you for joining. I come to you with not great news. The market has changed, as you know, and uh, we have to move with it in order to survive so that hopefully we can continue to thrive and deliver on a mission. This isn't news that you're going to want to hear, but ultimately it was my decision and I wanted you to hear from me. It's been a really, really challenging decision to make. This is the second time in my career I'm doing this and I do not, do not want to do this. The last time I did it, I cried. This time I hope to be stronger. Okay, and then here's the second clip where he basically tells everybody over Zoom that you're not going to be able to log in and you got two weeks severance, three weeks before a month severance, and it's like three weeks before Christmas. Go ahead. We are laying off about 15% of the company for a number of reasons. The market, efficiency, and performances and productivity. If you're on this call, you are part of the unlucky group. You, dude. That is being laid off. Your employment here is terminated effective immediately. Are you kidding me what does this mean for what's next you're going to get an email from hr ask hr at better.com to your personal email address regarding the details of your severance and your benefits for all u.s employees we're providing four weeks of severance one month of full benefits and two months of cobra for which we will pay the premium so three months total benefits if you elect for cobra all right. Uh, if, I mean, for we've all operated business before. I mean, does I've, anybody I've, had, I've had to do layoffs before. It is the most fucking brutal yeah. thing. Yeah, this it's is the exact terrible. wrong way to do it, though. Terrible. I, I remember an AOL. But there's no right way to do it. But I think the question with this guy is to examine, you know, the growth incentive that got him to this point. He took SoftBank money. SoftBank, as you guys, as we all know, creates a very strong incentive and capitalizes businesses to go after kind of ultra, perhaps unnatural growth. And there's almost always shocks that occur after they do that. And uh, the circumstance, I think, could have been avoided. Maybe he built a business a little more steady, but then his valuation would have been lower and he wouldn't have been able to access as much capital. And so, you know, unfortunately, the loss of jobs is the cost of capital with these ultra high growth incentives that are kind of being structurally built into the fundraising rounds in these later stage deals lately. I don't know if you guys agree, but it's just Sachs and then Chamath. Okay, so how would you do this, Sachs? You're an operator. Yeah, I mean, so I've had to lay people off before, but never in this era of COVID and remote work. So the question, and and look, it is miserable, and I think that it is the right thing to do for him to take responsibility if if there if this restructuring was caused by a strategy that was you know overly prioritized growth. I think he could say something like, "Look." This is my fault, the company's fault, you know, not your fault. So I think he could exactly I think he could have couched that. I think he could have taken responsibility. That being said, I don't think he owed the groveling apology that he was forced to make because look, here's the thing. How do you lay nine hundred people off in this era of remote work? I mean, they're all working from home. There's no office for them to go into where you can sit them down one on one like a human, like you used to be able to do, and have a conversation. So they are laying people off by Zoom now, and it's unfortunate, but I think it's just this new world that we're in, and I don't know that there's a much better way to do this. I think the words could have been better. Maybe it could have been more organized, but how do you lay off people who are working oh, from I mean, home? I have an idea, but Chamath, let me let you go first. Any thoughts you want to add? And I'll tell you how I would have done it. 
I remember when I had to do my first layoff uh, at at AOL. Um, or a lot of them there. <laughs> and, and there was a lot of those riffs. And I remember the first one, I was in my early to mid-20s as a manager. And we had three or four people or whatever. And I remember distinctly that AOL had this policy at the time because I guess they had maybe like better, like tens of thousands of people, employees, lots of call center as an example. And they've had to have riffs before. They would have security guards and there would be a security guard outside the meeting room where you would bring somebody in and talk to them. And I just remember being seared in my mind because never having done it before, I was like sweating profusely, really nervous. I didn't know what to say. I felt really bad. I felt very guilty. And then you learn how to do these things. And there is a very humane way to try to do these things. It's never the best thing to do, but you try to give people a fair exit package and all of these things. Let me put that aside because I think what Freeberg said is so good and so important. The root cause of why this is here, as far as I can tell, is not a company that doesn't have consumer demand. It's a company that may have been mismanaged for growth to meet the consumer demand because of too much money. And this is a thing that is an avoidable mistake. And this is where you have to figure out how much you want to basically swim with the tide and be like everybody else, which is to be able to go to the dinner party, say I raised X amount of dollars at Y valuation and just keep ticking it up and ticking it up. Or to actually have the discipline to hit the brakes and say, I don't need it. I don't know what to do with it. I'm not ready to take it. I need to figure out my business model. Those are two different kinds of decisions. There's going to be layoffs in both. But if he actually came at it from the perspective of, listen, guys, we've been growing methodically and there's just been a structural change. Or for example, rates are ticking up. There's a lot less demand and we have to right size the company. That's a very different statement than maybe we overgrew because we were drunk on free money. And now we have to realize that we actually have too much capacity for the demand that actually exists. And those are avoidable mistakes, frankly. Yeah, I've had to do layoffs. Obviously, it's it's not fun. Um, this was executed terribly. To your point, Sachs, I think a much easier way to do this would have been to go to the leaders in each group and say, hey, listen, we're going to have to do these layoffs. It's going to affect different groups. So you take your group into a subset of Zoom, you explain to those people, and you do it. Hey, listen, we are reorganizing because of these reasons. Chamath had some good language there, other people did. But this idea of mass firing 900 people with right. one person, I think that's the critical error yeah. here. It, one, it was inhuman. That's either, that's a little megalomaniacal. That's like a little he, insane It was almost like he wanted to talk about himself in this yeah, as totally. opposed to taking responsibility to unpack it. Um, obviously, when something like this happens, then ev- or the floodgates open. Forbes got a uh, 2020 email leak where he called his own employees dumb dolphins. In the email that's been leaked since this came out, you are cap locks on too damn slow. You are a bunch of dumb dolphins and dumb dolphins get caught in nets eaten by sharks. So stop it. Cap locks on. Stop it. Stop it right okay, now. But, you but are Jake, embarrassing this me. This is the pile on. This is the pile on. I know, on. but this now, person now clearly for 24 is a hour, Yeah. No, for 24 hours, he's the incarnation of evil in the eyes of the media. And then they're going to move on to a new person in a couple of days. So. I mean, look, I think... Have you ever wrote that to employees? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, to, do we have an email coming I wrote, out from I Yammer? wrote all caps. Uh, <laughs> guys, I, I quit the group chat for a day. You did I, rage I, quit. I, I, all caps, I all caps you guys this uh, week. That's hilarious. Rage quit. But can, can, I, can I connect with something Chamas said about... Sure. Uh, about okay, so the, you have this, this, this larger question about 
are, did the company grow too fast? And are founders asking the right questions about growing too fast? Let me connect that with the first conversation we had about the macroeconomic situation. I think, you know, every startup board right now probably needs to be having a conversation about the macro picture because there's one of two possibilities happening right now. We've already seen in the past five weeks, we've seen 30 to 40% correction in the public markets for growth stocks and SaaS companies. That is absolutely going to trickle down to venture valuations. I think it already has. If you look at the crossover guys like Tiger and KOTU and D1, I guarantee you, they're all updating their models, their valuation models based on the public comps. So, you know, we are now in a slightly different environment. I don't know that 100 times ARR is, a, is, is the metric anymore as it was, you know, say two months ago. I don't know where the new metric is going to land. We're going to have to see some deals get done post correction. But, you know, we could be in a very different environment here. And I think, I think there's two possibilities. Either the, the rate increases that are coming next year are now priced in. And we're going to go back into, you know, a, a mode of going back up and to the right. And especially, I think, if this BBB built gets killed, we'll go back and up to the right. Or this could be the beginning of a protracted slide as, you know, more and more market participants realize that we're in a very different kind of environment. And we may not have seen the bottom If you yet. were running a company, Sachs, and you had just raised that $100 million crazy round at 100 times, what do you do? If you well, were running I just, a SaaS just, company, what would you do? I just had this conversation with one of our SaaS founders. They just closed a monster round at a great valuation and I, it literally a few weeks ago. And they have some interest for more people wanting to get into the round. And I just pointed out, listen, you know, we may be going into a very different environment. And I think the company is worth the valuation we got. But, you know, the if you just look at the public comps, valuations are down 30, 40%. So, if we were to take more money into the round at the same valuation, that's kind of a good deal for the company. And it gives Great us deal. more runway, gives us more insurance. Secure so the bag. No downside. Secure, yeah. So we, those are the types of conversations I think it's prudent to be having right now. And frankly, there's a lot of investors and certainly a lot of founders who never lived through the dot-com crash Oof. and down markets. And they don't know how bad it can get. They've only seen good months, times. Right. What? 18 months of nuclear winter? No, no checks being written? Yeah, I mean, whatever well, you got, in, in whatever food you have in the cupboard is what you're eating for the next. In 2000 months. to 2003, you had three years of nuclear winter, pretty much. Um, but you know, in 2008, 2009, it was about 18 months of nuclear winter. I mean, yeah. it's just it wasn't a, even it wasn't even that cold. But yeah. you want to hear a great uh, 2008 2009 fundraising story? Sure. Uh, I'm at Facebook. Market just implodes. And we need, we decide that we need to raise some insurance, just a little, in, you know, a little downside? insurance policy, a little money, a little downside protection. And uh, I remember that we have, were having all these conversations with uh, TCV. And, you know, they're, they're a really good firm, uh, very smart. And basically, you know, we, we told them what the price was. I think it was like $7 billion pre, right? Like $7 billion, we want to raise $500 million just please just do it. We, we, we just wanted a little margin of safety. And they came back with their model and they updated their model, David, to your point. And um, uh, they came back at like 6.8 or 6.7, something like that, 6.5. And we were like, my God, what the fuck is this? Like, this is not seven. We just like, we just want to raise some money at seven. And seven was a down round because we had already taken money from Microsoft at, at 15 10. billion. No, at 15. 
So we had thought we had hit the jackpot when a year ago, a year earlier, we raised $249 million from Microsoft. Now, by the way, why 249? Because at 250 million, Bomber would have to go to the board. So he goes one, 1 million under the number where Bomber can sign the check himself. So we get Bomber in for 249 at 15 billion. A year later, the great financial crisis happens. We are raising money. We tell TCV, please just give us 500 million at seven or eight, some number. They come in 700 million under because their model says whatever. And I will never forget this. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was on the phone and I think it was with like Ted Elliott, our general counsel at the time. And we got an, a term sheet from a certain person, Yuri Milner at DST. Whoa. And Yuri zip, came zip. in, he, he throws the high heater at like eight and a half or nine. No board seat, all common. I mean, a completely disruptive mood move, and move. And all I just remember asking Ted Elliott was, does he vet? Meaning like, will the wire clear? Will justice yeah. let the money come into the United States? <laughs> Not knowing, right? Because we had heard, you know. Anyways, the money cleared. We took the check and the rest is history. I have a good story about but that. When you are yeah. when you are facing an enormous downturn, you have a fiduciary responsibility, David, to your point, to make sure you're well capitalized. But then on the other side, you have a really important fiduciary responsibility to you and all the employees and everybody else to run this thing properly. And you cannot get confused that value and valuation are not the same thing. Absolutely not. Yeah. And so the minute you conflate the two and you're like, I'm an X billion dollar company and start behaving that way, you're dead. By the way, there's a big difference. I think it's important to note. I know it's been said many times before, but I'll, I'll say it again. There's a difference between what your responsibility is as a board and as a fiduciary to the shareholders of that individual company and what the incentives and motivations are for the big investor that just put all this money into your company for their portfolio as a whole. For their portfolio as a whole, they would rather tell everyone, go hard, go fast, spend as much money as you can. And they hope that one out of 10 companies becomes 100x from there. And it's okay if nine out of 10 die. So they don't care if you die. They care if one out of 10 companies goes 100x. Yep. You have a different incentive and a different motivation because if the company dies, your shareholders, you as an entrepreneur, your team lose out. And that tension needs to be understood really clearly by entrepreneurs and executives that are taking money under these conditions. Tiger Global, SoftBank, KOTU, they're great people. There's good people investing there. But the incentive for them is quite different than it is for you. They're betting on a big winner. Yes. And do not, do not expect that just because they're betting on a big winner, that they're expecting you will be the big winner. It's, they're indifferent. As long as they have one, go 100x. It's fine. When Doesn't I, matter what happens to you. When I met Yuri Milner, he came to a certain poker game. Not to play, but just to say hi. And I said to him, I said, you put all that money into Facebook. There's like a week or two after it happened. I said, why didn't you take a, a board seat? That's never happened. And he looked at me and he goes, Jason Calacanis, you don't need to have a board seat to be influential. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> he, he became a goat. I, I, was, I, I think this guy's gonna like whack me any minute. The rest, the most the rest is history. Line I ever heard. You do not need the board seat to be influential. I was like, <laughs> what do they use? Compromat? What? I don't. I don't want to know. Compromat. <laughs> Compromat. He's got guys. And someday I'll tell the story of the three-hour lunch I have with Yuri Milner. All right, listen. 
for I, uh, I I don't know if we have anything else to clean up here. Juicy Smollett. Than, Are we talking about Juicy Smollett? Ja- the is famous it Jesse French or actor? Juicy? Is it Jesse? All right, listen. There's the famous I, French I actors, as Dave Chappelle calls him, the famous French actor Juicy Smollett. <laughs> All right, listen. I don't even want to go there, but I there's a person who pretend this. I mean, I think it's actually worth talking about since we do go to yeah. the, we do talk about race sometimes. There's an actor who faked that he was attacked in a bias attack. He was found guilty of doing this. It's deranged. It's sad. Okay. The person I'm, I'm has hanging mental up. issues. I'm, hang- I'm not interested, in, I'm, I'm not interested in the gossipy stories. You guys have a good time. I'll see you guys wait, all wait, later. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, let's move. What, what else do we got on the docket? I don't want to lose <laughs> Friedberg so I miss Friedberg. I'll I gotta, say, are you going to come to the party I wanna, tomorrow? I want to hug Friedberg's bony body. <laughs> why don't you come to the yeah, party tomorrow? Why don't you come tomorrow? to the party tomorrow? tomorrow. Are coming? What are you? What are you? All of a sudden, you're John Lennon? Boys, I was in I did the thing with the thing of the film that we talked about. That's fine, but okay. And then I was in it's doing another good. thing. All right, that's all good. Okay, so don't show up. Jake Al said he was going to go skiing. I said, you go skiing. Have a good time. No, I'm showing up for my obligated. bestie. This is like the Beatles. And you know what? Shamat's turning into to John Lennon. He's going to hang out. He's got some Yoko we got, we got thing some going on. There. He doesn't want to show up. We'll have Rick and Sax be there. Going. Sax, you're going? Guys, you know how far it is from where I live. From I know because I play. It's I come to your house to play poker. Minutes, he comes to your house every week. <laughs> I know what it's like. And I love you for that. And I love you for that. Yeah. Are oh, you going to go Sachs? What's the chance that Sachs shows up? He RSVP'd. Are you going to go Sachs? Should I no, pick no, you up the, on the way? The RSVP, he didn't even do. One of his... Oh, one for of <laughs> Freeberg's holiday party? Yeah. Well, I have a he conflict. He came to your birth. Oh, oh, you have a... Oh, here oh, it is. Oh, my God. What is the conflict? You need to drink some Pappy... V- holiday party tomorrow night, so... Oh, oh you're, wait, let's go. you're going down to... For his party? Can I go? I'll skip Freeberg's for that. Yeah, yeah. You <laughs> all right, okay. fine. Sorry, Freeberg. I'm <laughs> out. Okay. We're selling you out. Wait, why are you going? It's all good, besties. Why are you ha- Wait a second. You're picking over Friedberg. I mean, I've gone to a holiday party for like the last five years or whatever it is. Number, maybe more years than that. It's always Tell a great party. Tell us what it's like. Tell us what this it's like. This is a good party. You, when you see him, do you look him in the eyes and say, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> the two of them never, the, the two of them haven't looked each other in the yeah, eyes. They never looked in the eyes. <laughs> they never looked in and the eyes. that was like an accident. They were, when they first met, they accidentally. <laughs> okay, I got to run. What are, wait, no, wait, wait, wait. Okay, okay. Do we have well, anything let's, else? Let's do the Jesse Smollett thing quickly. No, we do it last because he don't want to talk about it. Better no, it is the last we thing. We've what been else going do for we over have? an hour. New let's Bank IPO was huge. Who cares? BuzzFeed Who cares? IPO was a complete disaster. 80% of people redeemed their SPAC. BuzzFeed is circling the drain. What a disaster. The end. Thank you for tuning in to the All In Podcast. No, that's all we have on the docket today? <laughs> Chamath you, is ready, are you man. Only Chamath. Chamath is loose, loosey goosey. <laughs> He's a little loosey. He wants to go for. I've been too. working. I've been working so. Ugh, I'm working so hard. I know. I am wiped oh out this God. week. I was traveling all this week. I'm hard. exhausted. I got people in town. I got to run. Uh, okay, uh, we'll let Freeberg go. We'll just go for five more Ciao minutes. Bella. I'm gonna go tomorrow, Freeberg. I'm not selling you out like these other two. I love like, you, Jake. Like Ringo and love you, Freebergers. Love you guys. And, we'll see you later. Uh, Lennon over here. I'm gonna be. Oh, Paul yeah, did I tell you about my poker game on Monday? Oh my god! Wait, you had a poker game. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> oh my god! You went big. It. We lost oh. our minds. Oh no! And oh, there no. was there was some. Is there a big owl story? There was some enormous carnage. Oh. Uh, wires Uh-oh. were initiated today, so everything is settled. I, were you I, carnaged? Nope. Oh, I did a little bit of this. I did a little chewing of oh. the carcasses. <laughs> you're like one of those. Was there a whale and you're just like a great white shark just taking bites after the whale's dead of the Me, blubber? We quit at 3 a.m. and it was uh, it was nice. That is crazy. All right. So for Jesse Small, and now that uh, Freeberg's gone. Yeah, Jesse, Jesse Small. 
I mean, it's just very weird. I mean, I think on a race issue, this is like the worst possible thing to happen. Because we do have instances of Asian hate of, you know, people being beaten up before the color of their skin for their sexual preference, whatever it is. And then this person is so mentally deranged that they set up a bias race attack. Apparently, am I correct that he did this in order to get sympathy so that his acting career would do better? Or do we not well, know? Think, Apparently, he was he, like negotiating his contract and he was worried about getting cut from the show. What? But he, he was on the show Empire and he was worried about getting cut from cut from the show. But look, I, I to me. So this, this hold on, explain that to me. Yeah. He's worried about getting cut from the show. So the logic jump is if I had a race attack, they can't fire me. No, he played the sympathy card. Sympathy card. I got it. Yeah. That, I just want to make sure I'm understanding it and I'm not crazy. He, he made himself into a cause celeb of the woke left. This is in early 2019 when everyone was worried about, you know, Trump. So he claimed that he was beaten by two MAGA, you know, haters who tied a noose around his neck and poured bleach on him. I'm not sure what the bleach was about. I think maybe that was to make him white or something. He said is that what it was? two white dudes. Okay. And then, and then at one point, he in the in the interview when they, he, the the interrogators or the investigators were pressing, "Are you sure they were white?" He said, "Well, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be racist." <laughs> light, and then it turned out the two dudes were black. Like, I mean, like from but Nigeria. He yeah, he, he hired, hired them. them. He hired them, and he paid them by check. So this is not like a master criminal. It's no Lex Luthor. <laughs> no, no. But, but, but look, I, I, I think this story, what it's really about, it's not a, just a story about one sociopath doing this crazy thing. It's really more a media story. This is about how the media they covered it. it. They loved it. And I wall think this to wall news. Wall to wall coverage. And I think this reflects all the worst qualities of the media. Number one, rush to judgment. They immediately bought into the story and they were attacking the Trump administration for creating the hate and the MAGA people. So there was a feeding frenzy. Number two, there was no, and this goes with the rush to judgment. They didn't do any fact checking whatsoever, right? Because the story was too good. It fit all their priors, just like the Rolling Stone ivermectin hoax about, you know, the MAGA people, you know, in Oklahoma hospitals or whatever. That story was too good. And Rolling Stone and Rachel Maddow bought the fact checking, bought the hoax hook, line, sinker because they didn't do the fact checking. And then number three, no corrections. None of these sources ever apologized, did the mea culpa, issued a correction. There's just an eerie silence coming out of all the sources who pumped the story like crazy. You have to, uh, Nick, please put it in the show notes. The, there's got to be a YouTube clip of the Chappelle joke around Juicy Smollett. <laughs> and the basic joke is like every colored person stayed silent. All the blacks, all the browns. And the joke, the punchline of the joke is because we were all like, mm, he's probably <laughs> did it. <laughs> you know, like, why aren't you defending Juicy Spolet? And the whole point is, nah, he looks kind of guilty to us. Well, I mean, hold it's on incredibly a funny. If you let's just play 15 seconds of this, a deep linked to his first interview. I think this is his first full interview. Just play 10 seconds of that because this is of Juicy Spolet. Yeah. I noticed the rope around my neck and I started screaming. And I said, there's a rope around my neck. Did you get any kind of description of the attack? I gave a body description and I, you know, because I saw this, but, and you know, right here or whatever, but I didn't see, I can't tell you what color their eyes were. I can't tell you. And I did not see anything except the second person I saw running away. And the first person, yeah, I saw, saw his stature. I gave the description as best as I could. You have to understand also that it's Chicago in winter. P 
people can wear ski masks and nobody's going to question that. It's just so deranged. I mean, the, the poker towels are flying off of him. He's like thinking. Does, like, it, does this make him a bad actor or a good actor? I just want to know, David, as a producer, are you hiring him now or not? Yeah, may, like, maybe. Yeah, maybe I will hire him, actually. I think he's working he, he, he finally got his Emmy. <laughs> Oh my God, sorry, too soon. But the crazy thing here is that a lot of people, all the liberal elites basically fell for this hook, line, sinker. President Biden, Vice President Harris, Pelosi, they all jumped the gun on this and were basically denouncing, they bought into the story, they were denouncing this racist attack and blaming Trump and the administration for it. I have a new policy. I wait until the court case is over to comment on these crazy things. I don't want to comment on a Twitter. I don't want to yeah. like it or retweet it. We have a justice system. If this stuff is hitting the justice system, just let the process happen because right. the velocity of social media is such that, and we talk about algorithms all the time, that if something like this happens, it's going to become the number right. one story and a billion people are going to see it. And then there's fallout. And the fallout here I is it just right. divides the country. Oh, just I, I everybody the shut up and wait. The same thing happened on the Rittenhouse case, right? Absolutely. Just Massive wait. rush to judgment. They accuse this kid wait. of being a white supremacist attacker who basically like a school shooter, it turned out to be totally false. But you know, the court systems have been doing an amazing job. When you think about the cases, I think the courts have been on quite a run in, I think, contradistinction to the media who keeps getting it wrong, right? So you think about it. So Derek Chauvin convicted, Jussie Smollett convicted, the uh, the three killers of Ahmaud Arbery convicted, okay? So. But Kyle Rittenhouse, not guilty. Kenneth Walker, not guilty. This was uh, Breonna Taylor's boyfriend who killed a cop when they killed her. Remember when yeah. they bust into the apartment? He basically um, pled uh, his case. He pled self defense because he, he didn't know who was shooting at them, and right. he he got no off. No knock just, warrant. Yeah, he got off just like how Rittenhouse did. So you know, people I think are jumping the gun on a lot of these there's, cases. There's actually an enormous amount of justice. America is an incredible country. We don't get enough that, credit for that. That yeah. mostly finds a way to get to the right place. Obviously, there are moments where we completely get it wrong. But David, to your point, those are some really powerful examples in modern history with a lot of scrutiny where um, our peers, American yeah. jurors, found the way to get to the right answer. Yeah. Feels great. Yeah. Bravo I mean, to America. Bravo yeah. to those folks. Good job. Good job, by the, by the way, the Breonna Taylor example is a really wonderful example. And the Ahmaud Arbery thing was really important to me as well. Thank you for bringing it up. I yeah. appreciate yeah. it. Well, I mean, you know, because, because I think, you know, when, when the Rittenhouse verdict came down, a lot of people were saying, well, look, if, if Kyle Rittenhouse had been black, he wouldn't have gotten this self-defense as justice. Well, Kenneth Walker, actually, that case was a self-defense case. And he killed a cop. Not a single article in the mainstream media to basically actually defend Kenneth Walker. Yeah. And he, he actually shot a cop, right? And, yeah. but, and he still got off because when they bust into that apartment, the jury thought it was reasonable. Very, very that he tragic. he was acting in self-defense. Very tragic that, 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 that the officer died, and I'm sorry yes, for their family. Exactly. But, but I really hope that Kenneth Walker has a, a really amazing, productive life from here. Yeah, I mean, and this, it's a terrible a, situation all around. a lesson of like, are these no-knock war warrants even warranted? Like, what what are we doing? Like, I why don't know, is that but necessary? If, if Kenneth Walker lives a productive life and does good in the world from here, he does a small up out to kind of make up for that injustice of Breonna Taylor and probably, you know, kind of create some positive karma for the family of the officer that passed away. And that's the best that you can do. It would just be great you if it, as Americans, we could start looking at these issues and saying, like, justice is worth pursuing 
the truth is worth pursuing. And we're all in it together. The United States, like we talked also, about today in the economy. Also, we got it right in places that the elite coasts yeah. kind of point to and look down on. We got mm. it right in places like Georgia and deep parts of Georgia, you know, and, 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 and I think that that's something for us to also think about. It, it is the a virulent strain of the liberal elite that really do judge the rest of the country for being in a way that is actually not true. They got it. They got it right in Kenosha, Georgia, Kentucky, Illinois, just to be just to put it on the record. We'll see you all next time on the All In Podcast for the dictator, Rain Man and the Queen of Quinoa. We'll see you all next time. Bye bye. We'll let your winners ride. Rain Man, David Sachs. We open source it to the fans and they've just gone crazy with it. Love you, West. The Queen of Quinoa. Be. Be. What? <laughs> we need to get merch. I'm going all in.